Chapter Twenty One of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One The King's Closet. During the time that the young Count was absent from Versailles and busied, as we have represented, with those schemes on which his future woe or welfare seemed beyond all doubt to depend, a scene was taking place in the palace of the King in which the Count was more interested than he could have supposed possible, and which, as will be seen at the close of this history, was destined to affect him as much as any of his own proceedings. The scene, then, was in the King's cabinet of Versailles. A clock of a rich and singular construction stood exactly before the monarch, marking out to him the portions of time which he could bestow upon each separate affair as it was brought before him. A large inkstand containing innumerable pens and a portfolio half filled with writing in the king's own hand lay upon the table wax of four different colours blue red white and yellow were also placed before him in a small case of marquetry which contained likewise several seals and an instrument of a peculiar form for spreading the wax the walls were ornamented with a few very choice small pictures a number of maps were there also and a few, but very few, books. The monarch was seated in a large armchair, his right foot supported by a footstool, and his hand holding a pen as it rested on the table. The expression on his countenance was mild but intelligent, and before him stood, a little pale indeed, and affecting certainly greater awe and terror than he really did feel, a man whom, as we described him before, may be passed over in silence as far as his personal appearance is concerned. This was no other than Jérôme Riquet, the valet of the Count of Merseuil, and behind him appeared the figure of Bonton, Louis' confidential attendant, who instantly retreated in silence from the chamber, on a slow nod of the head from the king. "'Your name,' said the monarch, fixing his eyes full upon Riquet, "'is, I understand, Jérôme Riquet,' and you are valet to the young Count of Merseuil. I have been his faithful valet in the field, and the camp, and the court, and the castle, for these many years, sire, replied the man. And I hear, continued the king, that you are a member of the Holy Catholic Church, while your lord is of the religion which its professors call reformed. Now, answer me truly, how have you contrived, during the long period of service, surrounded as you were, by Huguenot fellow-servants, and under a Huguenot lord, how have you contrived to fulfil the duties of your religion, I say, under such circumstances? Oh, sire, nothing so easy, replied the man. May it please your majesty, I was much better off in most respects than my brother Catholics, for on a fast day, sire, by my lord's order, on my account, there was either fish or some other meagre dish prepared, so that I had my choice. I could fast and grow thin, or sin and grow fat, as I thought fit. The king's countenance fell a little, at an uncalled-for joke in his presence, especially on a subject which, in his eyes, was of serious importance. Louis, however, was very rarely disposed to say a harsh word, unless it was impossible to help it, and he therefore passed over the valet's levity with merely the reproof of that displeased look, and then again demanded— "'So then, your lord gave you every facility of fulfilling the duties of your religion?' "'The greatest, sire,' replied the man, "'except when we were in Holland, 
where there was no Catholic church to be found, he has always driven me to mass as if with a scourge. Even at Mosoy, scarcely a Sunday passed without his telling me to go to mass and asking me if I had been. This looks well for the young gentleman, said the king, seemingly well pleased with the account the man afforded. We have had different stories at court that he was rank and bigoted and furious against the Catholic religion. "'Lord bless your majesty!' exclaimed the man. "'He's more than three-quarters of a Catholic himself, "'and if the devil gets the other quarter, "'it will only be because the count is driven to him.' "'Speak not profanely, sir, of things that are serious,' said the king, "'nor presume in my presence to venture upon such jests.' "'As he spoke, the whole aspect of his countenance changed. "'His brow grew dark, his lip curled, his voice became deeper,' his head more erect, and that indescribable majesty for which he was famous took possession of his person, making the unfortunate Jérôme Riquet ready to sink into the earth. "'Now, sir,' continued the king, "'be not frightened, but give me clear and straightforward answers in a serious tone. What you have told me of your young lord is satisfactory to me. I am most anxious to do him good and to show him favour. I have marked his gallant conduct as a soldier, and his upright and noble demeanour as a French gentleman, and I would fain save him from the destruction to which obstinacy may lead him. You say that he is three parts a Catholic already, and would be one altogether if it were not, at least so I understand you, that someone drove him to the contrary conduct. Now, who is it drives him, sir? Speak to me plainly and explicitly, and no harm shall come to you. Have you lost your tongue, sir, or are you struck dumb? The king continued, seeing that Riquet remained silent, while his whole frame seemed to work with terror and agitation. Perhaps, had his lord been there, he might have discovered at once that Riquet was working himself up to assume an immense deal more of terror than he really felt, but the king, conscious of having assumed an overawing look, which he had so often seen produce effects somewhat similar, believed the fear of the valet to be entirely real, and was not at all surprised to see Riquet suddenly cast himself at his feet and burst into an amazing flood of tears. "'I have offended your majesty,' cried the man, with a species of orientalism which was not at all displeasing to the ears of the despotic monarch of the French. "'If I have offended your majesty, take my head. But you are now proceeding to question me upon matters in which what I have to tell and speak of may produce the most terrible results.' I know not every word I utter that I may not be doing wrong. I know not that every word may not cost my life, and unless your majesty will deign to grant me in writing your full and free pardon for all that I have done, I dare not indeed, I dare not go on. Or, if I do, terror will make me prevaricate and attempt to conceal facts that the wisdom of your majesty will soon discover." "'Nay, nay,' exclaimed the king, "'before I give you such pardon, my good friend, "'I must know to what it extends. "'You may have committed twenty crimes, for aught I know, "'and may be a relapsed heretic, for aught I know.' "'So help me, God, sire, no!' exclaimed the man vehemently. "'I am a sincere, devout and zealous Catholic, "'and have been so all my life. "'Here is a certificate of the parish priest in Poitou, sire,' in order that I might have the benefit of the indulgence. And he drew forth from his pocket a small piece of written paper which Louis read attentively, and which bestowed upon him so high a character for devotion to the Catholic faith, 
and for various other extraordinary virtues, that Louis thought he could not be far wrong in assuring him of the pardon he wanted, especially as Riquet, while he read, had relapsed into a passion of tears, and the moments allotted to the task of examining him were fleeting rapidly away. "'Well,' he said, "'to make you at ease, I will grant you the pardon under some conditions.' "'And pray put in, sire,' cried Riquet, with real joy sparkling in his eyes. "'Pray put in that you take me under your royal protection, "'for fear the Count should be angry, "'or any of the heretics should attempt to take vengeance upon me.' "'That I will do also,' replied Louis, "'and taking the pen he wrote rapidly a paper which, "'according to the old English form, "'would have been somewhat to the following effect, "'though the beginning of it, "'us to sir, etc., "'may be somewhat freely translated.' Know all men by these presents that we, for especial reasons thereunto us moving, have granted our full and free pardon unto the person called Jérôme Ardouin Riquet for all crimes or offences that he may have committed up to the date of these presents, always accepted any crime which he may have committed against the Holy Church or our sovereign state, of which he is not at this time charged, and which may be hereafter proved against him, and that we do also take the said Jérôme Ardouin Riquet under our especial protection, warning all men to have regard unto the same, for such is our will. Louis. The king read the paper over, paused for a moment, as if he yet hesitated whether he should give it or not, and then, with a sort of half-smile and a look expressive of something between carelessness and magnanimity, he held it out to the valet, who seized it and kissed it repeatedly. Then, standing up before the monarch, he said, "'Now, sire, safe in your majesty's protection, I am ready and capable of answering distinctly and clearly anything that you may ask me.' The king took the paper up again, into which he had looked to ascertain the various denominations of Maitre Riquet, and then recommenced his questions as followed, returning in the first place to the one which Riquet had left unanswered. "'Who and what are the people who are driving, or are likely to drive,' "'your master to remain obstinate in heresy.' "'Please, your majesty,' replied Riquet, "'the principal persons are a very reverend and respectable gentleman "'called the Abbé de Saint-Élie, "'also the intendant of the province of Poitou, "'our reverend father, the bishop of Poitiers, Monsieur de Louvois, "'and I am not very sure that good Monsieur de Rouvray himself has not a part.' The king gazed at the bold speaker for a moment or two, as if doubtful of his real intention, asking of himself whether the man spoke sincerely and simply, or whether a daring jest or a still more impudent sarcasm lay concealed in the words he used. The man's previous terror, however, and the air of perfect unconsciousness of offence with which he spoke, did much to convince Louis that he had no double meaning. His tone, however, was sharp and angry as he asked, "'How now, sir, how can some of the best and wisest and most prudent "'and the most zealous men in the realm "'drive any heretic to refuse obstinately the cup of salvation offered to him? "'I trust you mean no offence, sirrah.' "'Jérôme Riquet's countenance instantly fell, "'and with a thousand lamentations and professions of profound respect for Louvois and Saint-Élie, "'and every one whom the king might trust and favour, "'he declared that his only meaning was—' that he believed his master and a great many other Protestants would have been converted long ago, 
if they had been led rather than driven. He added that he had heard the young Count and the old one, too, say a thousand times that some of the gentlemen he mentioned had done as much to prevent Protestants from returning to the Mother Church as Monsieur Bossuet had done to bring them back to it. Louis paused and thought, and had not his prepossessions been so complete as they were, the plain truth which the valet told him might not have been unproductive of fruit. As it was, it went in some degree to effect the real object which Riquet had in view, namely to impress the king with a notion that there was a great probability of the young count being recalled to the bosom of the Catholic Church, provided the means employed were gentleness and persuasion. It is very seldom indeed in this life that we meet with anything like pure and unmixed motives, and such were certainly not to be expected in the bosom of Jérôme Riquet. His first object and design was certainly to serve his master, but, in so serving him, he had an eye to gratifications of his own also. For to his feelings and disposition Versailles was a much pleasanter place than Merseuil, Paris a more agreeable land than Poitou. He used to declare that he was fond of the country, but liked it paved, that his avenues should always be houses, and his flocks and herds wear coats and petticoats. He naturally calculated, then, that if the king undertook the task of converting the young count by gentle and quiet means, he would not fail to keep him in the delightful sojourning place of Versailles, while he, Jérôme Riquet, amongst all the gods and goddesses of brass and marble, which were gathered together in the gardens, might play the part of Proteus, and take a thousand shapes as might suit his versatile genius. The king thought over the reply of Riquet for some moments, somewhat struck by hearing that the arguments which the Protestants held amongst themselves were exactly similar to those which they had often put forth in addressing him. So much skill, however, had been employed by his counsel and advisers to open wide before him the path of error and to close up the narrow footway of truth, that even when any one pulled away the brambles and briars with which the latter had been blocked up, and showed him that there was really another path, he refused to follow it, and chose the wider and more travelled road. Thus his conclusion was, after those few minutes' thought, "'This is all very well, and very specious, but as we do not trust to a sick man to point out the remedies that will cure him, so must we not trust to these Huguenots to point out what would be the best means of converting them. However, Master Jérôme Riquet, it is not in regard to opinions that I sent for you. I want to hear facts, if you please. Now tell me, do you remember, upon a certain occasion, a proclamation having been sent down to be read in the town of Marseilles, the king's officers having been insulted, and, I believe, pelted with stones, and the proclamation torn down? No, sire, replied Riquet boldly, for he was telling a lie, and therefore spoke confidently. I remember my master going out in haste one day, to prevent, he said, any bad conduct on the part of the people, and I remember hearing that he had caused the proclamation to be made himself in the market-place, in spite of some riotous folk who would willingly have opposed it. "'High time that such folk should be put down,' said the king. "'These are the peaceable and obedient subjects which the advocates of the Huguenots would fain persuade me that they are. 
but one question more on this head did you see the young count of mossoy cause the gates of the town to be shut in the face of my officers or did you hear that he had done so upon good authority no sire i neither heard nor saw it replied riquet and for myself i was safely in the castle during the whole day do you remember continued the king looking at the paper having carried notes or letters from your master to different protestant gentlemen in the neighbourhood of poitiers calling upon them to assemble and meet at the house of another huguenot named monsieur de colvois no sire oh no replied the man while we were at poitiers i only carried one note and that was to the saddle-maker who in repadding one of my lord's saddles had done so as to gall the horse's back sir you are lying said the king sternly riquet once more cast himself upon his knees before the monarch clasping his hands and exclaiming may i lose your majesty's favour for ever if i am not telling you the exact truth let any one who dares to say that i carried any other note than that which i have mentioned be confronted with me this moment and i will prove that he is shamefully deceiving your majesty for no other note did i carry no not even a love-letter otherwise i could and would not only tell your majesty the fact but every word that the notes contained this is very extraordinary said the king and i shall take care to inquire into it i trust your majesty will replied the man boldly for it may be recollected that he had not carried any note but had been merely charged with a message to monsieur de Courvois. i trust that your majesty will for i assure you on the faith of a valet de chambre that no such transaction ever occurred did not they want to charge me the very men who i dare say have brought this accusation did they not want to charge me with having abstracted your majesty's commission to messieurs saint and pelisson and with having placed a pack of cards in its stead and were they not brought to shame by its being found out that they themselves had done it by fragments of the commission being found in one of their valises wrapped like a dirty rag about an old tobacco-box how is this how is this exclaimed the king i heard that the commission had been abstracted but i heard not this result fragments of the commission wrapping a tobacco-box found in their own valises ay sir replied the man tis all too true for the examination was conducted in presence of monsieur de rouvray and with earnest volubility maitre jerome set to work and in his own particular manner gave the monarch a long and detailed but rapid account of what had taken place on the return of the count de mossoy to poitiers adding cunning commentaries in words gesticulations and grimaces which scarcely left the king the power of retaining his due gravity especially when riquet personated to the life the worthy cure of guadreuil in the discovery of the paper in his valise while he was in the very act of making this detail however the door of the royal cabinet was opened and a man of a harsh and disagreeable countenance with a face somewhat red and blotched but with great fire and intelligence in his eyes entered the room pausing for a single moment at the door as if for permission come in monsieur de louvois come in said the king this is jerome riquet the valet of the count de mossoy whom i told you i intended to examine 
He puts a very different face upon several matters, however, from that which we expected to find. And the king briefly recapitulated to his famous minister the information he had received from Riquet, leaving out, however, the first part of the conversation between them, which contained matter that could not be very agreeable to the minister. A somewhat sneering smile came upon Louvois's countenance as he listened, and he replied, "'I am very happy to hear, sigh, that the Count de Marseilles is so good and faithful a servant to your majesty. May I be permitted to ask this worthy person a question or two in your presence?' The king bowed his head, and the minister, turning to Riquet, went on, "'Although we have much more reason to think favourably of your master,' he said, "'than we had at first. "'Yet there is one point in regard to which, "'though he did not actually commit a fault, "'he greatly neglected his duty, "'at least so we are led to believe. "'We are assured that shortly before he came up to Versailles, "'a great meeting of Huguenots in the open air "'took place upon a wild moor "'within the limits of the young Count's lands.' which meeting, though held for the peaceful purpose, we are told, of merely preaching in the open air, terminated in bloodshed and an attack upon a small body of the king's dragoons who were watching the proceedings. Louvois' eye was fixed upon the valet all the time he spoke, and Jérôme Riquet was making up his mind to deny steadily any knowledge of the transaction. But suddenly his whole views upon the subject were changed by the minister coming to the head and front of the Count's offence. Now, continued Louvois, although there was certainly no law to compel the Count to be present on such an occasion, yet when he knew that a meeting of this kind was about to take place on his own estates, and that dangerous consequences might ensue, he would but have shown his zeal and duty in the service of the king by going to the spot and doing all that he could to make the proceedings tranquil and inoffensive. "'But the Count did go, sir,' exclaimed Riquet. "'The Count did go, and I remember the fact of his going particularly.' "'Are you ready to swear that he was there?' demanded Louvois. "'All I can say,' replied the valet, "'is that he left home for the purpose of going there. "'I was not present myself, but I heard from everyone else that he was.' "'And pray, at what hour did he return that night?' demanded Louvois, "'for the events that I speak of did not take place till near nightfall.' And if the Count had been there till the whole assemblage had dispersed, a thousand to one no harm would have ensued. "'I cannot exactly tell what hour he returned,' said the valet, who was beginning to fancy that he was not exactly in the right road. It was after nightfall, however. "'Recollect yourself,' said Louvois. "'Was it nine, ten o'clock?' "'It might be nearly ten, said the man. "'And I think,' said Louvois, his lip curling with a smile, bitter and fiend-like, "'I think you were one of those, were you not, "'who went down on the following morning to the spot where the young Marquis de Ericourt had been murdered. 
"'Your name is amongst those who were seen there, so say no more. "'But now tell me, where is your master at this moment?' "'Jérôme Riquet smarted under a strong perception of having been outwitted, "'and the consequence was that knowing, or at least believing, "'that when a man falls into one such piece of ill-luck, "'it generally goes on with a sort of run against him. "'He made up his mind to know as little as possible about anything,' for fear of falling into a new error, and replied to Louvois's question that he could not tell. "'Is he in his hotel at Versailles or not, sir?' said the minister sternly. "'Endeavour to forget for once that you are professionally a liar, and give a straightforward answer, for on your telling truth depends your immediate transmission to the Bastille or not.' "'Was your master at home when you left the house, or out?' "'He was out then, sir, certainly,' replied Riquet. "'On horseback or on foot?' demanded Louvois. "'On horseback,' replied the man. "'Now answer me one other question,' continued the minister. "'Have you not been heard this very morning?' to tell the head groom to have horses ready to go to Paris. Sir, said Jérôme, with a look of impudent raillery that he dared not assume towards the king, but which nothing upon earth could have repressed in addressing Louvois at that moment. Sir, I feel convinced that I must possess a valet de chambre without knowing it, for nobody on earth could repeat my words so accurately unless I had some scoundrel of a valet to betray them as soon as they were spoken. "'Sir, your impudence shall have its just punishment,' said Louvois, taking up a pen and dipping it in the ink. But the king waved his hand, saying, "'Put down the pen, Monsieur de Louvois. You forget that you are in the king's cabinet and in his presence. Riquet, you may retire.' Riquet did not need a second bidding, but with a look of profound awe and reverence towards Louis, laid his hand upon his heart, lifted up his shoulders like the jaws of a crocodile ready to swallow up his head, and bowing almost to the ground, walked backward out of the room. Louvois stood before the king for an instant with a look of angry mortification, which he suppressed with difficulty. Louis suffered him to remain thus, and perhaps did not enjoy a little the humiliation he had inflicted upon a man whom he, more than once in his life, declared to be perfectly insupportable, though he could not do without him. At length, however, he spoke in a grave but not an angry tone, saying, "'From the questions that you asked that man just now, Monsieur de Louvois, I am led to believe that you have received some fresh information regarding this young gentleman, this Count de Mosseuil. My determination up to this moment, strengthened by the advice of Monsieur de Meaux, Monsieur Pellisson, and others, is simply this, to pursue to the utmost the means of persuasion and conciliation, in order to induce him by fair means to return to the bosom of the Catholic Church. Better, sire, replied Louvois, far better, cut him off like a withered and corrupted branch unfit to be grafted on that goodly tree. "'You know, Marquis,' said the king, "'that I am always amenable to reason. "'I have expressed the determination which, which I had taken under particular circumstances. 
if you have other circumstances to communicate to me which may make me alter that opinion, do so straightforwardly. Kings are as liable to error as other men, perhaps indeed more so, for they see truth at a distance and require perspective glasses to examine it well, which are not always at hand. If I am wrong, I am ready to change my resolution, though it is always a part of a king's duty to decide speedily when he can do it wisely. The simple fact, sire, replied Louvois, with the mortification under which he still smarted, affecting his tone of voice, the simple fact is, as your majesty must have divined from the answers that man gave me, I have now clear and distinct proof that this Count de Mersoy has, throughout the insignificant but annoying troubles occasioned by the Huguenots in Poitou, been the great fomenter of all their discontent and their leader in actual insurrection. He was not only present at this preaching in the desert, as these fanatics call it, and led all the proceedings by a speech upon the occasion highly insulting to your majesty's authority and dignity with all which your majesty has already been made acquainted but upon not very clear and conclusive evidence said the king upon evidence monsieur de louvois which should condemn none of my subjects before a court of law and therefore not before his sovereign that he made a speech is clear but some of the witnesses deposed that it was only to recommend moderation and tranquillity, and to beseech them on no account to appear on such occasions with arms. "'All hypocrisy, sire,' replied Louvois. "'I have had two of the dragoons with me this morning, who were present with my unfortunate cousin, young de Ericourt, and they are quite ready and willing to swear that he, this Count de Mousseux, began the affray by striking that young officer from his horse. "'Without provocation?' demanded the king, his brow growing somewhat cloudy. "'They saw none given,' replied Louvois, "'and they were close to him. "'Not only this, but, as it is shown that he did not himself return to his own house till late at night, "'that de Ericor never returned at all,' and that the two were angry rivals for the hand of this very Mademoiselle de Marly, there is strong reason to believe that they met after the affair on the moor, and that the unhappy young man was slain by the hand of the Count of Marseilles. "'This is something new indeed,' said the king. "'Have you any further information, Monsieur de Louvois?' "'Merely the following, sire,' replied the minister that in the course of yesterday evening the famous fanatic minister claude de l'estang the great stay of the self-styled reformed church who on more than one occasion in his youth opposed your royal father in arms and has through life been the great friend and adviser of these counts of Marseilles, arrived in paris last night sent a billet down to the Count this morning, and further that the Count immediately went up to visit him. Unfortunately, the news was communicated to me too late to take measures for tracking the Count from Versailles to the hiding-place of the minister, whom it is desirable to lay hands upon if possible. The Count was tracked indeed to his own hotel in Paris, but just before I came hither, the messenger returned to tell me 
that as soon as Monsieur de Mousseux had arrived at his own house, he had gone out again, on foot, and all further trace of him was lost. What I would urge upon your Majesty's attention, then, is this, that if you suffer him to trifle away many days, persuading you and good Monsieur Bossuet that he intends to yield and return to the church, you will suffer this affair of the preaching, the tumult, the murder of some of your most loyal subjects, and the previous factious conduct of this young man, to drop and be forgotten, and you cannot well revive it after any length of time, as it is known already that full information has been laid before you on the subject. It does seem to me, sire, continued the minister, seeing that Louis was much moved by his reasonings, it does seem to me that you have but one choice. You must either, believing as I do, that the Count de Mousseau has not the slightest intention of ever becoming a convert from the heresy which he now professes, determine upon arresting him and punishing him for the crimes with which he is charged, should they be proved, or else you must grant him your royal favour and pardon, put it out of your own power to investigate further the matter, bestow upon him the hand of Mademoiselle de Marly, and leave fate and his own inclinations to convert him to the Catholic faith or not as may happen. "'I certainly shall not take the latter alternative,' replied the king. "'The circumstances you have brought forward are extremely strong, especially this renewed visit to Claude de Lestang. I am not one to show indecision where firmness is necessary, Louvois. In an hour or two, whenever I think it probable that he is returned to Versailles, I will send to require his presence. I will question him myself upon his belief.' ascertain the probability of his conversion, and determine at once. If I find your statement correct... Sire, replied Louvois, interrupting the king, as was too often his custom to do, there is little use of your asking him any questions but one simple one, the answer to which must at once satisfy so great and magnanimous a mind as yours, and you will see that I entertain no feeling of personal enmity to the young man by the question that I am about to suggest. If he answer that question candidly, straightforwardly, and at once, in the manner and sense which your majesty can approve, give him your favour, raise him high, distinguish him in every manner. But if he prevaricates, hesitates, or answers in a sense and manner which your majesty cannot approve, "'Send him to the Bastille!' "'But what is the question?' demanded the king eagerly. "'What is the question, Monsieur de Louvois?' "'This, sire,' replied Louvois. "'Monsieur de Mousseux, I beg and command of you, "'as your king and your benefactor, "'to tell me whether there is or is not "'really any chance of your ever becoming a convert.' to the true Catholic faith of this realm. Louvois, by putting such a question into the king's mouth, showed not only how intimately he was acquainted with Louis's weaknesses, 
but also how well he knew the firmness and candour of the young Count de Merceuil. He knew, in short, that the latter would tell the truth, and that the former would condemn it. "'Nothing can be fairer,' replied the king. "'Nothing can be fairer, Monsieur de Louvois. I will put that question to him exactly, and upon his answer to it he shall stand or fall.' "'So thoroughly am I convinced, sire, of what the result will be,' continued Louvois, "'that I will beseech your majesty to give me authority to have him arrested immediately after he leaves you, in case you send me no order to the contrary.' "'Certainly,' replied the king. "'Certainly. I will sign the order immediately.' "'Allow me to remind you, sire,' replied Louvois, that you signed one the other day, which is already in the hands of Contal, only you ordered me to suspend the execution. That will do quite well, and Contal will be at hand to put it in force. Be it so, said the monarch, be it so. But let Contal be in the way at the time I send for the young Count, that I may signify to him that he is not to arrest the Count if the answer I receive satisfies me. "'And now, Monsieur de Louvois, what news regarding this business of Dunkirk?' The king and his minister then turned to other matters, and having concluded the principal part of the affairs they had in hand, were talking somewhat lightly of other matters, when one of the attendants, who knew that the hour of Louvois was over, opened the door and interrupted their further conversation by announcing, to the surprise of both, that the Count de Mousseau was in waiting— beseeching earnestly a moment's audience with the monarch. The king turned his eyes upon Louvois, as if to inquire, what is the meaning of this? But a moment or two after he bade the attendant give the account admission. Then I had better take my leave, sire, said the minister, and give Gontal a hint to be in readiness. And taking up the papers from which he had been reading some extracts to the monarch, Louvois bowed low and quitted the room. End of chapter 21 End of the second volume